Well, this morning we are going to begin a new series of messages that will take us through uh, to the uh, beginning of of August. And the series will focus on some of the difficult questions that people have about the Christian faith and objections that people sometimes raise to Christian belief. Um, And we've titled it Asking for a Friend. Right. Like, why well, there's these difficult questions. Not I don't have, but my friend does. So I'm asking for for them. Right. That that sort of that sort of little white lie that we tell. Um, I want to point out at the outset that these messages will be expositional. So we've not just left the reservation and we're just sort of doing these topical series and things like that. Rather, every message will be rooted and anchored in the text of God's word. Now, a little bit of an overview here. I want to suggest that this series is especially designed for three types of people. If if you're here and you're conscious that you're uh, not you're not a Christian, uh, whether you're here in the room or or you're joining us online, and you would say, "No, I'm not a Christian." In fact, I'm not a Christian because of some of these serious objections. That I have. Um, so you're the first type of person that this is designed for. And by the way, if that's you, I just want to I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for joining in. I'm really glad that you've taken time to listen in to this uh, uh, um, uh, one pastor attempting to give uh, responses to some of these very valid objections that some people raise. The second type of person is if you're a Christian and you struggle with some of these questions, you have doubts uh, about your faith. If that's you, I'm, I'm, I'm also glad that you've you've uh, tuned in with us. And the third type of person is for those of you who aren't wrestling with any of these questions and you don't have any doubts, but you know people who are. So you know what that means? This sermon series is for who? Everybody. Very well. So I'm glad you're very glad you're here. I, I want to uh, say one other thing at, at the outset, that if you are a person who struggles with doubt, who struggles with some of these difficult questions, I, I want you to know that God is not this is going to rhyme. So really pay attention. God is not freaked out by your doubt. God's not. He's not on his throne wringing his hands like, oh, no, she's unsure about something. In fact, Jesus's half brother, whose name was Jude or Judas, he, there was a good and a bad Judas among the twelve. This was the the good Judas wrote these words in a little epistle named Jude, uh, verse 22. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. Did you get that? If you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian and you understand that you have doubts at times, God's word, God tells us through his word that other Christians are to be generous towards you, are to be merciful towards you and never, you know, judgmental or condemning. That would be completely out of step with what God's word tells us. So let's let's begin to kind of narrow things down as we approach our first question. Are you familiar with the concept of a watershed? This is a geographical feature. So the continental divide is the watershed that runs up through the the spine of America. And, and, And this is the idea. If you're standing right here on the continental divide and you take a cup of water, let's say you're facing north, which is obvious. Um, you take a cup of water and you pour it out right here. Eventually that water is going to end up in the Pacific Ocean. But if you take a cup of water right here and you pour it out, that water will eventually end up in 
uh, in the Atlantic Ocean. And so the idea is it, it's just this razor thin uh, margin right here. Just a, a difference of a few feet ends up taking that water into places that are thousands and thousands of miles uh, separate. And in a similar way, there are worldview watershed questions as well. There are certain fundamental questions that we can ask. And I would say all of us should ask. And how you answer that question ends up having massively different different implications as you um, work out the way you're going to live your life and your worldview. Here are what I think the top three. You ready? First question. Does God exist? If God exists, there are massive implications that go all over in this direction. But if God does not exist, if atheism is true, there, on the other hand, are also massive implications that go off in the other direction. Second question, if God exists, has God revealed himself? Again, huge implications. Either way, we answer that question. And the third enormous worldview question that we all need to answer is how if there is a God and he's revealed himself, how can I know him? Now, with respect to question two, that's what we're going to be uh, addressing this morning. The idea that for 2000 years, get this, for approximately 2000 years, Christians have believed that God has uniquely spoken in this book, which is the Bible. And therefore, it is the authoritative word of God without any mistakes or errors in it. So as we jump in, let's one more time quickly turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you once again in Jesus's name, and we ask that you would give insight to our spiritual eyes. I pray that we would be people who not only apprehend that your word is true, but that we love you, the God who has revealed himself in this book, the Bible. Thank you for speaking to us so clearly. And I pray that you would do that again this morning. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Have you ever gone through a crisis of faith? I think I kind of did. Maybe not a total crisis, but I went through a period of my Christian life where I I went through a a very difficult struggle. This is 20, maybe 22 years ago, something like that. I had become a Christian a couple of years before then, and I love to tell people about Jesus. So I was in college. I went to Georgia State University, downtown Atlanta, and uh, and I love to engage people with questions about about their faith and about Uh, Jesus and the Bible and things like that. And as I engaged with people, I got understandably a lot of pushback from people um, who didn't believe that the Bible was um, was God's word. Uh, In fact, I heard some outrageous things that 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 people claimed about the Bible. But eventually I realized that all Christian belief follow this now, all Christian belief really comes back to whether this is the word of God or not. Right. Is this actually from God or is it just the product of uh, human creativity and and authorship? And so when I got questions that were denying this book and, and doubting the accuracy of it, those caused me to struggle. And instead of causing me to just walk away from my faith, for me, this is probably just how I'm wired. It drove me to the library. So what I did is I just I pursued for month after month after month, a very deep and focused study 
of the word of God until I finally got to the place where I could say this book and all of it is the infallible, authoritative, inerrant word of God. And so what I want to do this morning is walk you through uh, some things that were persuasive for me and that I hope will get you thinking and maybe better able, better equipped to address questions that people might have for you about why it is that you should trust the word of God. So we're going to start with the scriptures. So uh, grab your bulletin there or if you can, if you brought a Bible or have your phone, and you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 40, please turn there now. <clears throat> now, the context of Isaiah is the prophet Isaiah comes to Judah, the people of God in the south and basically tells them that because of their wickedness, they are about to be taken captive by another nation <clears throat> and led away for several generations. <clears throat> and Isaiah, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 40 is this turning point of remarkable hope. And we're just going to read verses 8 through 10. This is what Isaiah says. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. I want you to notice in verses eight and nine that God's spoken word is linked with good news and linked with the arrival of God. That is God himself coming onto the scene. Now, this whole chapter of Isaiah 40 is magnificent. And the gist of it is Isaiah juxtaposes. He sets next to one another these two ideas, the ideas of the idea of humans who are transitory and God who is eternal. He basically says that humans are weak, transient, fading, passing away, contrasting that with God who is eternal, who is uh, everlasting, who is permanent and enduring. And God tells Isaiah that one part of him that lasts forever is his what? His speech, his words. That's one part of God that lasts forever. We might summarize this section this way. God's word is as permanent as God. God's word is as permanent as God. Jesus said something 700 years later in Matthew chapter 24, 35, where Jesus said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will never pass away. Now, think of it. Think of this for a moment. If God had spoken, but that word had been lost, what benefit would that be to us? What benefit? None. None at all. So we, we might say it this way, deep within the divine nature, deep within God's nature is an impulse not only to communicate, but to ensure that that communication lasts and stays around. You see, this is why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. 
and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Let's turn to the second scripture, which is Second Timothy, chapter three, verses 14 through 17. And I want us to see here that God's word is essential for us, for you and for me, especially for salvation. That is for us to know God. Starting in verse 14, Timothy, uh, Timothy is the Apostle Paul's protege. I'm going to preach through Second Timothy uh, at some point. It's an absolutely magnificent book. And this is what Timothy write, uh, Paul writes to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Did you get that? The sacred writings are able to make one wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. Which worldview connection, if you can remember back, which worldview worldview question does this connect with? Which one? The third one, doesn't it? How can we know God? That's what he's addressing. Folks, don't ever buy into the idea that you can know God or grow in God apart from his word. It is true that God has provided other means. We sometimes call these the means of grace. But nevertheless, the the scriptures, we could argue, are paramount. The scriptures are paramount. I mean, after all, how else are you going to be guided by God? Just go out into a field and wait for God to speak to you? Wait for an apparition or or a vision of God, you know, uh, go to sleep and hope that he comes to you in a dream. No, no, no. This is how God has made himself known to us is in his word. Verse 16 continues. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What's the point here? Well, the Old Testament scriptures, which had been written and the New Testament scriptures, which Paul was actually writing. By the way, we'll come back to that in a minute. Did Paul think that he was writing scripture? I'm going to address that in just a moment. But that these scriptures, they express the mind of God for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness so that you can know God, A, and B, so that you can be equipped to live a life that is pleasing to God. Thirdly, look at John chapter 10, starting at verse 27. I want you to see here that God is as good as his word. God is as good as his word. Jesus says these words, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And at that point, the Jews freaked out. They picked up stones, verse 31 again. Remember, they had done this earlier in John eight. They picked up stones again to stone him. But Jesus answered them. I've shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them. Is it not written in your law in Psalm 82? I said, you are God's. If he that is God 
called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken like incidentally like and by the way, you know, and I know that scripture cannot be broken. We we all agree on that. Then do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. I draw your attention to this because of this little incidental expression, the scripture cannot be broken. But let me explain something first. Psalm 82 was not teaching that there are multiple gods in the universe. If there's one thing that the Bible teaches is that there is one God and one God only. Rather, the gods were Elohim in Psalm 82. They were judges. They were human judges of Israel who were wicked. So the word Elohim is not reserved exclusively for the one and only God. Rather, it can also be used to designate human judges that God has appointed. Well, in that, those days, some of them had become wicked. And this is what Jesus is saying. Why would you stone me for identifying myself with Elohim when even human judges took the same name? Now, Jesus is claiming Far more for himself when he says, I and the Father are one. But he removed any reason for them to be offended. So on his way to making this powerful point, Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken, which literally means it cannot be loosed. It cannot be undone or dissolved. And therefore, whatever God says in his word will infallibly happen. It will come about. So all that scripture says is true. I'm I'm tempted to just rest my case right there and to say this is what Jesus believed. And I'm comfortable just hiding behind Jesus. Any any of you comfortable just hiding behind Jesus saying this is what he believes. So I'm going to believe it, too. I think he may know a little bit better than you and me. Now, this is a small passage that I'm putting a lot of weight on. But on the other hand, just because a uranium atom is very small does not mean that it doesn't have a pretty good bit of power when it is split in half. Now, you who are physicists can correct me. It's probably not actually split in half. However, this works when an atomic bomb goes off. Now, if Jesus was referring to the Old Testament writings, and I think primarily that's what Jesus was Referring to what about the New Testament writings? Twenty three percent of the Bible are the New Testament writings and the New Testament was written after Jesus died. So how do we know that Jesus believes that the New Testament writings were authoritative? Well, let me give you a few reasons for this. One is in Mark chapter three, verse 14, which says in Jesus appointed this uh, appointed twelve whom he also named Apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. An apostle is one who is entrusted with the authority of the one who sends that apostle out. So he started with the twelve and over time as they matured, God, uh, Jesus entrusted to them a new title, namely apostles. And it was these apostles who had this conferred authority. Some of them who went on to write the New Testament letters Epistles and Gospels. Now, Jesus tells us we should have expected this because in John 14, 26, Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That was a specific promise to his apostles, to, to the twelve. 
so that they might be able to remember these things and then do what? Write them down. And Peter even promised this in Second Peter chapter 1 when he said, And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. That's 2 Peter 1.15. How are we still able to recall these things? Through the written scriptures that uh, God authorized P- Peter to write. For, for a moment, let me come back to this question. Did the New Testament writers believe that they were writing God's word? That's quite a, an astonishing claim. If Christians believe, did they think they were doing that? Or is this something that later is like, oh, yeah, and, um, and also what the uh, apostles wrote, like that's also the word of God. We'll just kind of keep adding to God's word. Did they, was that their self-understanding of what they were doing? Let me read you a scripture and I'll give you another one to write down and look up later. Well, okay, I'll read them both to you. First Corinthians fourteen thirty seven. Write this down. I quoted this to a friend of mine who said, I don't really think Paul actually believed that he was writing God's word. And I said, well, but first Corinthians fourteen thirty seven says this. I'm going to read it in a second. And he said, oh, well, I guess I was wrong. I'm like, wow, I've never seen someone actually change their mind, but he changed his mind right there. If anyone thinks, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual that is inhabited with the spirit, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Or we could go to 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, jot that one down too. Paul says this, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it as what you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And here's one more. I can't resist this one. Did Peter? We'll just take Peter. I mean, he kind of knew Jesus pretty well, right? Did Peter think that, you know, Paul's writings were scripture? Well, he tells us that he did in Second Peter, chapter three. So write that one down, too. Verses 15 and 16, Peter writes, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you concerning, uh, excuse me, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Peter's talking about Paul's writings. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Can I get an amen? (laughs) You ever read something in Paul? You're like, this is brilliant. But what is he talking about? Peter says some things in them are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter understood that the Apostle Paul's writings were the word of God. Now, with all this said, I do believe that the most powerful argument for the authority and the accuracy of scripture comes back to Jesus, Jesus claimed that the Old Testament that was written and the New Testament that would be written was the very written word of God. And so at the end of the day, I stake my case for the authority of Scripture on Jesus and what he said. But if you're big into logic, you no doubt are thinking to yourself, but that's what? Circular. You're trying to claim that the word of God uh, you know uh, that the Bible is the word of God, but you're staking your your uh, 
you, you say you believe that because of something that's within the word of God, right? Something that Jesus said to which I, I plead guilty. But if I don't appeal to scripture at some point, really try to make sure this sinks in. If I don't appeal to scripture at some point and I have some other test over here, whatever that test is, what has all of a sudden become my final authority? This other test and not God's word. You see. Now, if Jesus wasn't the son of God, let me put it this way. If Jesus wasn't the son of God, then what the Bible says is fraudulent and should not believed, should not be believed. Do you, do you agree with that? I, I agree with that. I think it's absolutely true. If Jesus wasn't the son of God, then what the Bible says about him is fraudulent and shouldn't be believed. But frauds do not generally help people, do they? Is there anyone in the world, I challenge you, is there anyone in the world who has had more of a, an impact for good than, than Jesus? Who would you put in second place even? Who has had more of a beneficial impact on the world than Jesus Christ? And who would you even put in second place? Certainly a lot of people who've done wonderful things for humanity. You can think of Martin Luther King Jr. or uh, Mother Teresa or, or, or something like that. But that, they, they don't even begin to compare. Jesus is in a class by himself. You know, I, I've met hundreds of people who don't believe that Jesus was... God or the son of God or that he was authoritative, but they, they have to admit he lived an amazing life. He, life. He, was, he was unlike anyone else who's ever lived. And here's the kicker. Can you ever think of a time when a lie did more good than the truth? I find that impossible. I can't ever think of a time when some lie ended up doing good. In the long run. Now, I personally find that argument compelling. But I have a few others. So if you're not yet convinced, I'm about to give like a shotgun blast to mix my metaphors of tapas. You ever done that? You go to a Spanish restaurant and instead of getting the entree, you order like five or six appetizers. Let me give you, don't fear, eight very quick arguments. And I hope something sticks. I'm going to just start throwing everything I can, including the kitchen sink. And maybe something will will move you. Argument one, archaeologists, many archaeologists who deny the Bible's accuracy, nevertheless, use it to help locate archaeological sites. Like, well, this Bible's flames, not true. And where should we dig? Let's see over here. No, over there. That's where we're going to find some good stuff. Well, that's that's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, number two. Objections to the Bible, to the Bible's accuracy, continually are overturned as time goes on. For example, for many years, people said, we know the Bible is wrong. It's inaccurate because we know that there was never a king of Assyria named Sargon. And Isaiah chapter 20, verse 1, alludes to Sargon, king of Assyria. It's like, well, boys, keep digging. And they dug a little bit more. And all of a sudden they discover not only was there a king of Sargon, but I have been in the British Museum. There is an entire room. It's probably about the size of, of, of this room in the British Museum that is dedicated to none other than Sargon, king 
of Assyria. In fact, one source says that today Sargon is recognized as one of the Neo-Assyrian Empire's most important kings. (laughs) Number three, and this is maybe my favorite. The Bible includes so many embarrassing and awkward details, and they would not be in there unless if they were true. Here's three. Women were the first to discover the empty tomb on resurrection morning. And it's sad and pathetic to say that in those days, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. You wouldn't put this in there unless it happened that way. Second, Peter denied Jesus three times. What? (laughs) Peter? Like the premier apostle? After three years being with Jesus, Peter denied him three times. If you're making the Bible up, you leave that out. We don't have to tell him everything, John, right? (laughs) And here's another one that I love is in Matthew 28, verse 17, which is the verse right before the Great Commission. It says that some of Jesus's followers still doubted. And you don't put that in there unless if it's true. John uh, Matthew 28:17 says and when they saw him on the mount of olives they worshiped him but some doubted you see the point here's the point if we can trust the bible to honestly report embarrassing and awkward details then we can trust it when it gives us admittedly incredible details fourth argument now this one is a little bit nerdy so if you want to do your shopping list go ahead you can space out for a moment But we possess, we like libraries, possess more ancient copies of the Bible than any other work of antiquity by a factor of about 17. So that is, there are 17 times more ancient manuscripts of the just the New Testament, not even the Old Testament, just the New Testament scriptures than the second best attested ancient Document, which is Homer's Iliad. So we have about 1,500 copies, either whole, whole copies or fragments of Homer's Iliad, whereas we possess 25,000 ancient copies or fragments of the New Testament writings in various languages. You see, most ancient documents, we have a, just a, a handful of copies that still, that are still around and that still exist. To put it in perspective, a stack of ancient manuscripts of a well-attested author, just the average well-attested author, would stack up to about four feet high, whereas all that we have of the Bible would be a stack over a mile high, 2.6 million pages. And furthermore, this is getting really nerdy, but this one's cool. The oldest copy of Homer's writings that we possess is dated to 500 years after he penned it. He wrote it here, but the most ancient copy of the writing dates from here. So a 500-year gap. Another example, the Greek philosophers Aristotle and Plato. There's a gap of 1,700 years between when they wrote them, when they wrote their works in the most ancient copy of those of that writing. But in contrast, the gap between when the Bible was written and the oldest fragment that we have is about 25 years, depending on how you date P52. Nerd alert. Okay. anyway, (laughs) number five, this one is very subjective, but people throughout history have claimed that the Bible was a dramatic part of their transformation. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove that the Bible 
is God's word, but maybe it's worth considering. Maybe it's really true that this book changes people's lives. Number six, what the Bible teaches about human nature corresponds to reality, even though we don't always like what it says. So, for example, the Bible tells us that you and I, all of us, we are born with a corrupt nature. We are born with sinful hearts that don't naturally want to love God, that don't naturally want to love other people. So if you think that human beings are mainly good with just every now and then occasional smidgen of bad, then I applaud your optimism. But I grieve that I think you're out of touch with reality. There was a very, very, very wealthy industrialist by the name of Andrew Carnegie who made his fortune in steel. His money, his fortune today would be worth about $370 billion in today's money. And he gave so much of his money for the cause of education because he believed that the more educated people are, the better they are, right? The, the, the more that they treat each other well in society. In fact, now this will make you either laugh or cry, but he predicted in the 1890s, follow this, in the 1890s, that the next century, the 1900s, would be the most peaceful, conflict-free century in world history. World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. I mean, when World War II broke out in 1914 and killed millions of people. Andrew Carnegie was undone and he died in despair. His biographer wrote this. Well, his wife later wrote this optimist as he always was and tried to be even in the face of the failure of his hopes. The world disaster of World War One was too much. His heart was broken. And his biographer wrote these words. Everything that Carnegie had believed in had been held up before the world, had been weighed and found wanting and had been smashed on the ground. See, he his fatal belief, fatally flawed belief about human nature was shattered by reality. Folks, what the Bible says about human nature corresponds to reality, even though it's not always pretty. Seventh, if you're not willing to look to the Bible as your authority, let me just ask you, well, what is your authority? Maybe you say, well, my authority is me. I look to me. I look inside myself. And that's where I get authority for the kind of life that I I live. Okay, fair enough. My question is, um, which you? 15-year-old you? 25-year-old you? 65-year-old you? Is it you when you're kind of grouchy in the morning before you've had your coffee? Or is it you in the afternoon when you're feeling great and you have just had a, a meal with... With a friend. Um, maybe you wouldn't say, well, it's not me. It's society. Okay, fair enough. Which society? Society uh, in America in 2020? As if we all believe the same things in American society in 2020? <laughs> or is it Chinese society in 2020 B.C.? Um, maybe professionals are your authority. You say, well, no, it's uh, scholars that I look to. You know, again, as if they're all in agreement, you know, it's sociologists, it's um, therapists. These are the types of people. Uh, Well, which which discipline in which part of the world? Again, none of these people agree. Or maybe you look to religious leaders. You look to someone like me, a pastor, Pastor Stephen, Pastor McAndrew or 
It's like, well, which pastor, which church, which denomination? What's going to be your final authority? Maybe you just say, well, look, I I don't know, but I just try to do what I think is right. Okay, well, do you really trust yourself that much? I don't trust myself that much. Um, And and I hope that if you're not yet there, you'll come to a point where you, you see that you desperately need help. You see, it requires humility to submit yourself to God and his word. Eighth and final point. It takes God to open your eyes. It takes God, don't miss this, to open your eyes, to know, to see, to feel, and to taste the preciousness of this word. Listen to what John Calvin wrote. Illuminated by the Holy Spirit's power, we believe neither by our own or by anyone else's judgment that Scripture is from God, but above human judgment, we affirm with utter certainty, just as if we were gazing upon the majesty of God himself, that Scripture has flowed to us from the very mouth of God by the ministry of men. You know what he's saying? That if you were standing in front of God, the God of glory, you would know it. And you wouldn't need anybody to say, hey, look, that's God right in front of you. (laughs) You wouldn't even need anyone to tell you. You would know it. And it's the very same thing, folks, with God's word. The best thing you can do to determine if this is God's word is to open it up and read it. And I would pray for you that the Spirit of God would open your eyes. You you know I believe in evidences and reasons. I've, I've spent the last however long giving you those. But I plead with you, if you're in this room or if you're watching, to open this word up and ask the Spirit of Jesus to open your eyes. The psalmist said these words, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You know what the psalmist is saying? That if he gets out a spoon and fills it up with honey and puts it in your mouth, and then you say, I don't know, it doesn't taste sweet to me. What more can you do for that person? Nothing. If you are determined, friends, if you're determined to stand at a distance from God, then nothing will convince you. Nothing will convince you. I want to close by telling you that of all the objections that I've heard, all the uh, opposition that people have to what's in the Bible as the word of God. And every time I've taken those objections seriously and I've gone and done the hard work of of doing study in, in, in the library, I can tell you with absolute sincerity that there's not been one time when I didn't have at least some sort of satisfactory and plausible response to that objection. Okay, I've just never been utterly stumped by by something as I've gotten more into the word. I'm not saying that I have all the answers. That that is not true at all. Um, But what I am saying is that I have always been satisfied whenever I've deeply studied a serious objection to the Bible as God's word. Did you know that just minutes before Jesus died, he prayed for you that you would receive this word as the word of God? Did you know that? It's in John chapter 17. Listen to what Jesus said. 
He's praying to his heavenly father. And he says, I do not ask for these only for the his followers with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, father, are in me and I in you. I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, through the word of the apostles, which they wrote down in the New Testament scriptures. And you know what Jesus did next? He didn't just pray for you. He went to the cross and he stretched out his arms to ratify his love for you, which he's given to us in this word. Do you remember what I told the children? John 10, 17, what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My question for you is, are you one of Jesus' sheep? Have you heard Jesus speaking to you in his word? He loves you. He loves you so. And so it's to him that I now urge you to cling. Father, we thank you so much. This, I know, has been an exercise of this church trying to drink water out of a fire hydrant on full blast. But I pray that there would be something wonderful that would stick in the minds and the hearts of the men, women, and children who are hearing these words. I pray that we would be a church who would, um, with a renewed depth, treasure you as you've spoken to us in your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.